Good morning and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's Friday, so this is our weekend podcast. We're recording this on uh, December 18th, 2020, which is the one-year anniversary of the impeachment of Donald Trump by the House of Representatives. I, I say that because it feels like 10 years ago. And I suppose we could have another discussion about whether that was worth it or not. But there are so many other things going on that we need to talk about with our guest, our good friend, David French from The Dispatch. Good to talk with you again, David. Well, thanks so much for having me, Charlie. Well, before we get into anything, and there's so much going on, uh, I have to ask you how your granddaughter is doing. I see that uh, she's had some uh, medical issues and uh, just want to know that a lot of us have been uh, been thinking about that and praying for you. Well, I really appreciate it. We we spotted all the way back, well, really, the uh, ultrasound spotted some pretty serious issues all the way back in the end of August. And so we'd been white knuckling things literally week by week as to whether uh, Camille could uh, carry Lila as long as she did. And Lila was born on uh, Tuesday morning and is doing better than we had reason to expect. Um, she had a successful, what seems like a successful surgery at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. And, um, but there's just, it's just going to be um, hard. Uh, she's going to be in the NICU for a very long time. And uh, there's a lot of pain. And, and as you might imagine, when, you know, I, that's, this is my first grandchild and it's a really, um, it's an interesting thing to see your daughter uh, suffer and her, you know, your son-in-law and your granddaughter. And um, it's, yeah, but we're, we're very blessed overall because uh, as bad and as difficult as things are right now, we are in a much better position than we ever thought we'd be, honestly. So um, she's well, doing as better than we have reason to expect. Oh, that's that that is very, very good news. And I wanted just to talk about that first. Okay, so there's a breaking story right now that I just wanted to mention before we get into the show. Because by the time that people hear this podcast, uh, hopefully we will have gotten more information about this. But this is a scoop from Axios that the acting defense secretary, Chris Miller, has ordered a Pentagon wide halt to cooperation with the transition of President-elect Biden, shocking officials across the Defense Department, senior administration officials, tell Axios. And I got to tell you, David, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find out what the benign explanation for that would, would, would be. Yeah, this is one of those things where you hope that the initial report is, yes. has got some sort of flaw. Right. <laughs> that, that's because if that report is accurate, it, it's incredibly difficult to perceive any justification for it uh, under normal circumstances, much less after uh, we have learned that the U.S. government is reeling from what appears to be an unprecedented or nearly unprecedented cyber attack. Um, and so the idea here that there would be any kind of failure to cooperate um, to any extent at all, much less the extent just described, is... Uh, it's unconscionable. It's unconscionable. So this is one of those things where you know how when you see an awful report uh, on Twitter and then you just sort of have to wait a beat exactly. and wait another beat and then it has to sink in if it's actually true. This is one of those where I'm hoping that when we wait a beat, it it's not what it seems. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. In fact, I was just, as I was putting together my newsletter, though, I, I, I linked to this story from Politico. MAGA leaders call for the troops to keep Trump in office. Growing yeah. call to invoke the Insurrection Act shows how hard-edged MAGA ideology has become in the wake of Trump's election loss with all of these folks from Mike Flynn on up or down, whatever, you know, saying that, you know, bring in the army to, to do this, which, look, I don't think is going to happen. But the fact that we're even talking about it and then you get us. So this is what puts us on edge. So I want to mention this and hopefully by the time people listen to this over the weekend this has been resolved but whoa okay so um i want to i want to play for you um you know i let me let me let me, let me back up a, a little bit you, you know david i wrote in my newsletter today that i think there's there's two really difficult things that we all have to do in 2020 which is number one keep a sense of humor don't let it all get to us like that story right um and and, and number two though also retain our ability to be shocked and outraged and, mm-hmm. and I, I really do worry about this because, you know, we are in the midst of this human catastrophe, 3,000 Americans dying every day. That's a 9-11 every day. And I do feel that we're kind of numbed about it. So that when you see a report about how scientists in the Trump administration wrote memos saying, yeah, you know, we ought to let, you know, young people get infected. We ought to have herd immunity. We ought to be more outraged about that than, than we are. Right. Um, but but we do get we do get numbed to just the magnitude of the tragedy around us. Yes, there's no question about it. And it's it's even worse, Charlie, because there is a contingent of people that if you are not just calling out what's happened, this tragedy as a tragedy, but urging that we do concrete things, even as simple as masking, yeah. you know, even as simple as masking and social distancing, which is far short of a lockdown, that they'll try to bully you as some sort of fear monger or, you know, this this purveyor of like the Corona fear porn. And it's just really one of the most bizarre and deranged things I've ever seen in my adult life is this not just the the being numb to a tragedy that has been unfolding in slow motion for week after week, month after month is kind of a human, that's sort of a human phenomenon. This is something that happens. We become used to new normals, even when new normals are awful. That's kind of a human thing. The thing that is, that is deranged, the thing that is outright evil is the way in which there are people who will um, attempt to bully or shame or mock you. If you urge not just, and I'm yeah. not even talking a reimposition of massive national lockdowns. I'm talking about th- things like masking. I'm talking about social distancing, reasonable precautions for businesses. Then you're going to be hit with this, the you know this online wave of hatred. And this is that's one of the more deranged things that I've seen in 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 my life, honestly. No, it is, and it's in the fact that it's taking place as we're we're looking at the possibility of four hundred thousand Americans being dead by March. You know, it would be, I suppose, it's too much to expect that people who have been wrong about this, or or or, or who have minimized this, or called for premature reopening, would at some point say, "Hey, you know what? I was wrong about this. I, I actually have some regrets." Look, I, I'm like way over Chris Christie, but I have to say that that that, that ad that he cut, where he's basically yeah. saying, "I made this terrible mistake when I took the mask off. Do not do what I did." I got to give him credit for that because that that's 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 really an outlier. That's uh, you know that that's that seems countercultural right now for someone to say, hey, you know what? Um, I screwed up. This was me, and please don't yeah. make this mistake I made. 
You know, I've spent my entire uh, legal life fighting against political correctness, this, the legally coercive forms of political correctness, like speech codes and, and um, you know, speech zones and, and all these other things that, that have restricted the free speech rights of Americans. And I've seen sort of the excesses of left-wing political correctness straight up uh, and have combated them. But this right-wing political correctness began to form on the hard right mm -hmm. uh, against masking uh, has cost lives. Like th th this has cost lives and yeah. it's cost lives at scale. And that's not hyperbolic. And, that's, that is literally the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's a rational argument that it hasn't cost lives and, and, and yet it still persists. You see it all the time. Uh, I, you know, we were just, um, we had to, to run to target last night to, uh, get some supplies for my daughter very late. And, and I would say half the people in target were not wearing a mask. Um, and Tennessee is not just one of the hot spots in America. It's one of the hot spots in the world mm. for coronavirus in the world. And yet there is this culture and a sub a subculture within my state. And I know it's everywhere. It's, I think it's disproportionately more in some states than others that just says, no, we're not going to do this. And whatever you tell us to do or ask us to do, we're going to do the opposite. And, and Charlie, I know there are examples of hypocrisy and public officials mm -hmm. that are everywhere. And, and those people should be condemned and voted out of office. Uh, the people who have been hypocrites, absolutely. But the fact that say the governor of California has been a hypocrite does not make me more immune to the virus if I ignore basic safety precautions. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that, you know, people are using the hypocrisy of public officials, which is real and terrible to justify doing whatever the heck they want, which is dangerous and sometimes deadly. It is. And, you know, speaking of people who are doing the right thing though, I want to know, I, I see that uh, vice president Mike Pence is getting the, yes. the, uh, the vaccine and he did it live on television. So, you know, good, good, good for him. Mm -hmm. But, I, I can't help but mention, you know, um, back in June, June 16th, uh, 2020, Wall Street Journal op-ed titled, There is Not a Coronavirus Second Wave, and it ripped the big bad media for its pandemic panic and said the administration's actions were a cause for celebration, not the media's fear-mongering. That was in June, and yeah. here we are in December and it's not just a second wave, it's a second tsunami wave of 3,000 yeah. a day. So it would be, I, again, it's too much to expect that Mike Pence would stand up and say, you know what, uh, I was wrong back in June and I apologize. I have deep regret that I downplayed the significance of this and misled people about uh, the severity of the pandemic and uh, their need to actually do things uh, to, uh, to social distance and, and wear masks. But of course, you're not going to hear that. You know, and no. still, we're still having the super spreader Christmas parties. Okay, so the vaccine is coming, which is the good news. It, however, is not going to be in time for a lot of a lot of Americans. But one of the big questions that I have in my mind, and I, I'm guessing that you have this, the same question, is: Are we going to see the same kind of politicization of the vaccines that we saw of masking? And um, my gut tells me, yeah, we probably are. I don't know whether you heard it, but let's play this. Tucker Carlson on Fox News last night um, was talking about the vaccines. And uh, a lot of folks are saying, look, you know, what he's doing is he is now beginning 
to raise doubts about the safety of the vaccines based on random minor sort of anecdotes uh, right. to the Fox News audience. Let's play Tucker Carlson from last night. What a cheerful patient she must be. We've got to assume she is in any case because we can't really know the authorities didn't release her name. All we know is she's a highly satisfied customer. Yet another. Have a vaccine and a smile. Just do it. So how are the rest of us supposed to respond to a marketing campaign like this? Well, nervously. Even if you're strongly supportive of vaccines, and we are, even if you recognize how many millions of lives have been saved over the past 50 years by vaccines, and we do, it all seems a bit much. It feels false, because it is. It's too slick. The Gandalf guy was euphoric because he got a shot. It wasn't heroin. It was the corona vaccine. The lady who couldn't breathe as enthusiastic as she is rushed to the emergency room? Come on. This is patronizing. Stop with the slogans. Better to treat Americans like adults. Explain the benefits, be honest about the risks, and let the rest of us decide. In this country, we control our own bodies. They're always telling us that. But no, suddenly the rules have changed. On the question of the corona vaccine, our leaders are definitely not pro-choice. Their view is do what you're told and don't complain. No uncomfortable questions. Those aren't just suggestions. They're rules and Silicon Valley plans to enforce them. Twitter's announced a new policy to censor any unauthorized inquiry about the vaccine. Or as the company put it, false or misleading narratives about COVID-19 vaccinations. Among other things, Twitter is censoring any claim that this vaccine might be used to, quote, control populations. So whatever you do, don't say this is social control. Because if you do, the richest and most powerful people in the world will act in perfect coordination to shut you down immediately. So to repeat, there is no social control going on here. None. And if you suggest otherwise, Twitter's social controls will censor you. So Dave, David French, yeah. your, your, your thoughts about that. Tucker's just asking questions, just wants people to be honest, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I hear Tucker speak about virtually anything these days, I'm reminded of in, in, you know, the quote, I'm not sure it might be apocryphal, but it's been long, a, a uh, long attributed to a- Alexander Auguste Ledru Roland, this uh, French revolutionary leader <laughs> who is alleged to have said, there go the people. I must follow them for I am their leader. Exactly. And when I think of Tucker, I think of somebody who is not so much a leader, but somebody who is the eloquent vocalizer of the anger of a particular segment of America. And, and he, he puts into words, I think he, he's kind of the guy who takes the Facebook memes and puts them on Fox. Mm. And, and, you know, that's how I think about him. And, Mm -hmm. and I think what you're seeing here is yeah, I think he has some influence. I definitely think he has some influence. I mean, he's got the largest, uh, you know, depending on the day, the largest audience of cable news. But I also think he's an outlet for what's already there. And that, if possible, is more disturbing to me than the idea that he has influence. Um, I think he's an outlet for a sentiment that is already there, that is very widespread, and that you can hear just in normal life from folks who never turn on Fox, um, which is, you know, still most of America. (laughs) And, and you, you will hear this, this all, this is all just control. This is what they are doing. They do this. Our, you know, our overlords do this. Our, the elite does this. 
and he's a mouthpiece and he plays to that and he plays to that and and you know what you're right he he his he is he he may not be planting the idea but he's certainly giving it oxygen he's yes. he's giving it he's giving it amplification that you know again social control what those people are trying to do and this is one of the classic memes you know watch this video before they censor it here's what the media doesn't want yeah. you to know that whole that whole narrative reflex out there and that's the game he's playing at a time when you know basically we're on the razor's edge of whether or not we're going to beat this and 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 the stakes couldn't be higher and for sort of tucker to be playing that kind of snarky game is as you put i mean it's potentially just deadly it's it, it's yeah, a it it's a bad omen it's also very cynical. Let's just be um, let's just be honest about a lot of this stuff about social media censorship. A lot of what's going on is a game. It's almost censor me so that I may go viral. Yes, it's you know boycott me so that I may become popular. Yeah, and and so there's this there is this very intentional riding of the line that happens that you see on social media all the time where people will come right up to the edge of violating the terms of service, or maybe they'll do it in a way that leads to a warning rather than an actual blocking of their account. And then here come the denunciations that look at the censorship and all of the denunciations are coming on the same platform that they're accusing of censorship. <laughs> it's, it's a game. And, you know, once you know what's going on here is you've got, you know, it's, it's, it's so easy to see, you know, it's very easy to see what's happening um, if you're not edgy enough, it's almost as if if you're not edgy enough to earn some sort of warning from Twitter, then you're not really on the right anymore. Right. And and so that all and, and Twitter has to honestly has to learn to re react to this and respond to this because its current policies are giving oxygen to all of this. The way it's doing what it's doing, whatever its intentions are, is cr is creating energy and giving oxygen to this whole idea that I'm the truth teller and look at what big tech is trying to stop you from hearing and seeing. Yes. I, I am the truth teller, but I'm also the victim. I'm your champion, but I am also, you know, the purveyor of, of, of grievance because they're going to persecute me. Okay. So uh, David, let me take you down the rabbit hole of crazy a little bit because this, this again is, is part of 2020 and it, the question of, you know, how much disinformation and just complete bullshit is out there as part of our discourse, and you know, including uh, flooding social media. Uh, you may have seen this or a link to it. This this took place during a meeting, I believe, of the Texas Electoral College. Oh, right. Some guy stands up and he's telling a story about the deliberations of the U.S. Supreme Court. Before I play it, I want to make it very clear. This is a complete fabrication. It, it is not real. It's not possible. The justices have not met in person since the start of the pandemic, so this is pure, complete fiction, but it is everywhere on social media. Let's play a little bit of the, of this, of the soundbite. Line uh, that talks about... Uh, uh, it was written by someone who's a current staffer uh, for one of the Supreme Court justices. And this, I'll just describe the report to you that I read, and you can make of it what you will. Um, he said that the justices, as they always do, went into a closed room to discuss you know, cases they're taking or do debate. There's no phones, no computers, no nothing. No one else is in the room except for the nine justices. It's typically very civil. Um, they usually don't hear any sound. They just debate what they're doing. But when the Texas case was brought up, 
He said he heard screaming through the walls as Justice Roberts and the other liberal justices were insisting that this case not be taken up. Um, and the reason, the, the words that were heard through the wall um, when Justice Thomas and Justice Alito were citing uh, Bush versus Gore from John Roberts were, I don't give up about that case. I don't want to hear about it. At that time, we didn't have riots. So, I, okay, I just, and, it, and, it, and it goes on and you know makes up this story, which is completely un, un, untrue. But you know, this is everywhere. You get people, you know, Diamond and Silk is pushing this out. You know, that Trumpy lawyer yeah. Lynn Wood is pushing all of this out. And it does occur to me that th this is one of the, this is going to be one of the legacies of the Trump era because you know, without Trump's presidency, without him giving oxygen to crackpots like this, we wouldn't be talking. About, I mean, Diamond and Silk would still be out there, but it wouldn't be part of the conversation. Gateway pundit wouldn't be influencing anything. And yet here they here they are. So what I wrote this morning was Trump's presidency has really been a super spreader event for crackpots and this kind of really toxic, dangerous uh, disinformation. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of these things, I kind of there's sort of a, a countdown clock that I begin internally and that it's uh, time to text. So how long between <laughs> when I see something on Twitter before I get a text message uh, from a friend who's not a, a, a very online kind of person who is asking me about the uh, conspiracy theory. Mm. And this mm. one was fast. Um, I think I first saw it on Twitter maybe five, six hours before I got a, my first text message about it. And because, you know, this sort of fits in with a lot of the, here's what they are doing, you know, the they, the deep state, the court behind closed doors, et cetera. And we finally got a, a look on the inside as to what's happening and it isn't pretty. It's just as bad as you might imagine. And, you know, look, the court hasn't met in person in a long time. You know, th th these kinds of things are easily debunkable, easily debunkable. And again, look, you know, what we have is a situation where an awful lot of Americans who have no reason to know how the Supreme Court meets, for example, how they make their decisions being provided with quote unquote insider information after, you know, uh, being told from an awful lot of people for years and years and years and years that the, you know, what happens behind closed, behind closed doors is ghastly. It's horrible. It's terrible. And then they get a little, what they think is a snippet of it and they don't know what to think. And, but this stuff is being, again, so much deep cynicism here. There is so much deep cynicism. It is, we know this is false. And we're going to say it anyway, because if we say it anyway, then we are on the side of those who fight. And there are two kinds of people in this world on the right, those who fight and the cowards. And I will never be on the side of the cowards. I am on the side of those who fight. And in this, you see this dynamic play out time and this time This is the new ethos, again. that it's all about fighting, not, not, not yeah. about being gracious, not about being a good loser, not, not about observing norms. It is about fighting. So and I was going to wait on this one. You know, part of this, though, it's it, this escalation of the rhetoric, the people talking about uh, martial law, uh, the people talking right. about shedding blood. You wrote about this uh, over the weekend, uh, you know, what's happening with a lot of the, you know, Christian Trumpism, including, you know, once really respected authors and, and commentators like Eric Metaxas, who are turning this election into this, this, this apocalyptic moment 
that that really does feel like it could tip over into something really ugly and violent very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to read to you a couple of his quotes. So Eric mm-hmm. Metaxas, for those who don't know, is a guy, he's a Yale graduate, um, wrote a best-selling biography of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, used to have a um, an event in Manhattan called Socrates in the City, which is where he tried to integrate... Um, you know, he'd bring public intellectuals into a setting where you talk about faith and reason and politics and culture. My my uh, wife and oldest daughter have been to one of his Socrates in the City events where he hosted Malcolm Gladwell, for example. I mean, so th- he was a lead speaker at the um, National Prayer Breakfast a few years ago during the Obama administration. And now here's what he says. It's like stealing the heart and soul of America. It's like holding a rusty knife to the throat of Lady Liberty. This is evil. It's like somebody has been raped or murdered. This is like that times a thousand. He's talking about the election and, and he's the election. comparing the election to rape and murder. Yeah. Okay. And then this one, everybody who has not hopped up about this, the, in other words, angry about this quote unquote stolen election. You are the Germans that looked the other way when Hitler was preparing to do what he was preparing to do. Unfortunately, I don't see how you can see it any other way. So what you have going on, Charlie, here is the kind of rhetoric that inspires violence. We hopefully we will not see any more violence. We have already seen violence. I mean, there was a, you know, uh, um, a guy pulled over and held up at gunpoint who was a refrigerator repairman in Texas because allegedly he had 750,000 ballots in the back of his van when he really had refrigerator parts. So there has been violence. Um, Hopefully there will not be more violence. But the other thing that is particularly disturbing about a lot of this is a lot of Americans don't know how much this kind of rhetoric and these things like the Jericho March that were where where there was just unbelievable rhetoric in Washington last weekend, how much a lot of this is based on sort of dreams and visions um, where people are claiming to have received direct revelation from God about the election about Donald Trump's special place in God's plan and about how Donald Trump is indispensable is sort of like the indispensable man in God's plan. And that is something that I think uh, Americans need to understand is propping up. Now, not, not, this is not all Christian support for Trump, not by any means, but the people who are many of the people who are, who are marching in the streets, who are stopped the steal have a religious fervor about them that is dangerous. It is fanaticism. And I'm very worried that it could lead to additional violence. I, I agree. And it really, at some point, becomes almost indistinguishable from some of the Islamic radicalism that we've seen here. Because there, and I don't want to be misunderstood here, but there's a certain logical coherence, though, to the, the, the radicalism and the violence that if you really do believe that God has told you that something awful is happening. If you really believe that what's happening with the election is the equivalent of rape and murder and of what the Nazis did, then it becomes acceptable if, if not, if not required for you to take up arms. I mean, there, there, well, there is, is a, within, there, within that logic, what are you supposed to do? If, if, if you, if you think everything that you care about is, is under fire is under attack. Why not take up that, you know, the, the semi-automatic rifle and find someone and find someone to point it at? Well, you know, Ian Metaxas himself said, I'd be happy to die in this fight. I'd be happy to die in this fight. 
And so what you're then counting on and you're hoping for is that both the people who are delivering the message and both in the people receiving the message or sort of all together viewing it as hyperbole. So, you know, you're hoping that what's happening is that the audience is understanding this as hyperbole. And look, 99 out of 100 of them might understand it as hyperbole, or even if they don't view it as hyperbole, don't sort of then have the gumption to take the next logical step. But, you know, I'm not worried necessarily. I am worried about sort of what the 99 out of 100 think about our system of government and the kind of people they will vote for and the kind of people they'll prop up with their dollars and the conservative infotainment complex. Um, But I'm really worried about the one out of 100 or the one out of 1,000 who adopts the logic of the argument. And I, and I think that that's something that, you know, a key part of what you're saying here, does the argument have a logic that leads to violence? Yes. The, 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 yes. The, the, the good news, of course, is, is that the, the guardrails have held so far that the, the story, and you wrote about this for Time magazine, the, you know, the conservative judges all around the country that, uh, that push back against the attempts. I mean, this, this is an important story. Uh, it's also an important story. Local, local Republican officials who did the right thing, uh, things could have been worse. But how shocked were you last Friday? Was it last Friday? How, last week? Uh, when 126 members of the House of Representatives signed on to that crazy Texas lawsuit that would have overturned the election in four states, including my state of Wisconsin, how shocked were you by that? Not remotely shocked after I saw the way they behaved during the impeachment proceedings. Mm, interesting. <laughs> okay. That's good because to go. I, okay, you know, that, we started that's a, that's with an interesting it. action because I should have had the same reaction, but I didn't. It, it, it did. I've, I've described it as a gut punch. It was like, are you kidding me? But go on. I'm sorry. No, when I I, I lost any positive view of, of a, va- a very large number of House Republicans when I saw it wasn't just that they th- there was a there was a coherent argument about around impeachment that said Trump did what he did not do what he uh, Trump did something he shouldn't have done. It doesn't rise to the level of removing him from office. That to me is an argument worth having. I disagreed with it. I believed he should have been removed. But there's an argument that says Donald Trump, um, he did something wrong. He was checked internally. He's been checked. He, it, and so he shouldn't be removed. I get it. Get the argument. But what I saw in the House in, uh, you know, in a year ago was furious defense of him as if this entire thing was hopped up total nonsense. When we could read the transcript of the call ourselves, and what I realized is we were way past the hold your nose, he was better than Hillary stage of the argument for him. And we were, and many people were all in on, he is the man I will, you know, he is the great man. I will do what he needs me to do. And so nothing about what happened when, you know, I, I think I might've been a little surprised. It was all the way up to 126. Um, didn't surprise me the cast of characters who organized it. Didn't surprise me the cast of characters who signed it. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's in, because I wasn't surprised that it isn't any less repugnant. It was utterly repugnant, utterly repugnant. Same for the 17 or so state attorneys general who signed on. Yeah. It was completely repugnant because the whole thing it, it's, I hate to call it a stunt because that kind of minimizes yeah, it yeah. in a way. It, it, to call it a stunt should not excuse any aspect of its malice. But it was a stunt. 
Um, no, no serious lawyer would think it had a ghost of a chance, but its incompetence shouldn't excuse its malice. And so 126 members of Congress, 18 attorneys general, and of course, the Trump administration itself were in full support of something that was one of the most malicious and incompetent legal maneuvers I've ever seen in American history. And it was certainly in my lifetime. Uh, and, you know, look, I mean, it's it's sort of like each day of the post-election fight, there's a competition between depravity and stupidity to see which vice is going to be the dominant tone for the day. And that was a perfect combination of both. That lawsuit was a perfect combination of both. Okay. So have you changed your mind, have you changed your mind about burning it all down? You and I had a disagreement <laughs> earlier this year um, where I was saying, you know what, we, we, we just have to clear this out. The Republicans have become so, so corrupt, so complicit. And you were like, no, 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 there are still some good ones. Just, <laughs> well, where, where, I, where are you at on all of this? I have not changed my mind about making an individual determination about each candidate. Um, I have changed my minds about specific individuals okay. as to whether they merited their place in office. Well, so, let, me, let me do this because I, I've fallen on my sword about Ron Johnson. So, you know, yeah. he was a good friend of mine. And it's like, Ron, I thought Ron Johnson was going to be William Proxmire. Instead, he's turned out to be Joe McCarthy. Um, but you, you at one time were all in on Marsha Blackburn still. Oh, my gosh. Why did you bring that up, Charlie? <laughs> well, I, look, I got Ron Johnson. You got Marsha Blackburn. So we're even. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's so unfortunate, you know, because it's, uh, in 2018, I, I had written that we vote for good Republicans in National Review. This is when I was yeah. at National Review. And and uh, I mentioned our Senate race and Marsha Blackburn, who to that point had been a pretty, what I would call just a normal Republican mm -hmm. politician, just a normal, you know, not distinguishing herself one way or the other. And so her picture's up there. And then around comes, you know, things like impeachment. And she just went off the rails in her malicious defense uh, of Trump and her malicious attacks on Vindman, for example. And yeah, I mean, there's any number of people that you have seen that went from sort of normal Republican to engaging in behavior that a Republican, if a Democrat did it, it would be leading Hannity 14 straight nights. Okay, I'm really interested in your answer to this. What do you think happened there? Because we've seen this happen. Were they always this way and we just didn't see it? Or have they changed in some way? Is there something in the in the, in the the environment? Is there something in the political world that makes people who once looked normal act this way? And I feel the same way about Ron Johnson. I mean, I thought he was a normal sort of Wall Street Journal uh, editorial page guy. I didn't think he was going to become Ron Anon. I didn't think he was going to become you know, <laughs> obsessed with, with with the various conspiracy theories. So, I mean, was I always wrong about him? Did I just not see it? Or did you know he go to Washington and drink the crazy, crazy water? You know, I kind of have a general theory about life, and that is you never really know who you are until you're tested. Mm -hmm. And so... You can sort of say, well, no, I think I, I'm an honest person. And but then what happens if telling the truth carries a real cost? Well, then you'll learn if you're an honest person, hmm. um, you know, or, uh, you know, whatever value you believe that you possess, you don't really know if you have it until the chips are down. I mean, this is something you see all the time. And in war is, you know, the guy who's sort of like the barracks Rambo Yeah, that when when the bullets fly is nowhere to be found. I mean, like that's a real phenomenon that happens. And so I think a lot of people, what they got into, they got into politics believing it was one thing, and then it became another thing, and the stresses of it, 
and the pressures of it and the temptations of it, um, they weren't equipped to deal with it. Now, I think some of them were, you know, kind of maybe bad actors from the beginning, but I think a lot more of them were were blindsided by the moment. And then there had there was this carrot and there's this stick. And we all and Charlie, you and I know the carrot and the yep. stick dynamic on the right very well. The carrot is if you are the loyal defender of the president, there is a glide path into greater prominence. There's a glide path into the adoration of the Trump masses. If you are somebody who's going to resist the president, there's a glide path to abuse right. and to atta- personal attacks and to threats to your safety. And so you have the carrot and you have the stick. And there's an awful lot of people who are going to grab that carrot. And the more aggressively you grab that carrot, the fatter and juicier that carrot is. <laughs> and, and, and it I makes the pain stop. And it makes the pain stop as well, which is right. you, you're not going to get the abuse. You're not going to be hammered in, in the way that that uh, if you resist. So it's it's sort of a double one. I mean, a lot of fo- these folks, I think, just want to make the pain stop. So they just shut up. They stop saying anything. They keep their heads down. But then if they keep moving, they realize not only can the awfulness end, but I can be a rock star. Right. And and you can see, look at Lindsey Graham's eyes. You you can see that, hey, I went from being beaten up by these people to them thinking that I am just wonderful. What, why well, would you the bar, the bar to becoming a rock star is super low. So think about, for example, Jenna Ellis. This is somebody who was, you know, recent document documents indicate was fired for mishandling uh, cases in a DA's office in Colorado not too long ago and is now the personal, you know, is a lawyer for the president of the United States. So the there is a rocket ship available depending on the aggression with which you defend the president and the prominence of your defense. And so, again, you look at this and you think, okay, what's happened here is is people responded to incentives in a way that if you had if you'd gotten their 2014 self in a room and said, here's what you're going to do in six years, they would be offended, Charlie, mm-hmm. if you said that. They'd be offended. Who do you think I am? But then over time, the way the incentives work, I think you're right. I think there's a kind of a contingent that is sort of like the make it stop coalition, which is I'm not responding to Trump's tweets. I'm keeping my head down. And then there is the I'm grabbing the you know the carrot. I'm going for the brass ring coalition. And those people almost compete with each other, it feels like, in their in their depravity, in their mendaciousness, in their malice. They, they It's like a competition. It's a race to the bottom, which they are perceiving as the race to the top. No, I think you've you've you've, you've nailed that. OK, so we're transitioning into a, the 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 from the Trump world into Biden world. And so we're going to have these heated debates about things like, should Jill Biden be called Dr. Biden or not? And I, I, I've hesitated to talk about this because I genuinely just don't care that much about it. Um, but the Joseph Epstein op-ed in the wall street journal, I, I think we're, we're now on the what 10th news cycle. And I, I don't oh want goodness. to get, I don't want to get you in trouble, uh, David, uh, but I'm, I'm looking here at the, uh, the, the homepage of national review, which now has an entire heading section on Jill Biden's degree, including, uh, one article, uh, Jill Biden's doctorate is garbage because her dissertation is garbage. Uh, Joseph Epstein is right about the doctor problem. Jill Biden's, uh, garbage, um, dissertation explained. I mean, this is a thing. So w- where do you come down on the Jill Biden doctor thing? I mean, it was a troll. It was a troll, troll by, by Epstein. By, by Epstein and the Wall Street Journal. 
that basically got everybody in this online era of outrage exactly what they wanted. So it's it you know and you can, here's the here's a way you could tell it was a troll because it wasn't the opening sentence that Epstein calls Jill Biden kiddo. Yeah, kiddo. Um, that so was it was obviously written in a way that was designed to be deliberately inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So then, guess what? People get inflamed, and of course, because this is 2020 and the internet, some people get too inflamed, and and adopt a over sort of like this history, you know, a, a more hysterical Jill Biden defense as opposed to sensible Jill Biden defenses. This was just this was bad manners. It was deliberately inflammatory. Um, I'm going to call her what I'm going to call her. Ignore this. <laughs> people, you know, because one of the lo- first laws of politics in 2020 is for every overreaction, there's an equal and excessive overreaction or there's an opposite and excessive overreaction. So then that allows Wall Street Journal to sort of adopt this you won't intimidate us sort of mindset about (laughs) which was all that was was like you know twitter troll i mean what are we talking about here um so every it it was so i keep using this this same word so i think i mean listeners are going to get tired of hearing this word it was all so cynical it was all so cynical it's hey look i'm going to poke jill biden in the eye by being deliberately rude that's going to trigger a big online reaction and then we'll use the online reaction to say that we're being persecuted. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen this pattern. When we talked about it earlier in the show. Yeah. Yeah. It's a just, million times. I, it, it, it's, it's, it's the triviality of it. And, and then it, 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 I think Joseph Epstein was, I think was, there was a lot wrong with that piece, but um, it's become so much more mean spirited and nasty, which shows that, uh, well, you know, m- maybe nature is healing itself. Maybe we are moving on to something. So I heard you having a discussion um, and I, in the time we have left um, on one of the dispatch podcasts, um, a very interesting discussion because I'm not, uh, about how interested you are in, in the media wars of 2021. And I, and I share this, this interest because I think one of the most important things that's going to happen uh particularly for conservative politics, will be this back and forth struggle between Fox News and Newsmax and, you know, OAN, because there's there's a there's a media civil war here for the scraps of of Trumpism. And we've been talking about these pressures and these incentives. Uh, There's going to be tremendous incentive now to move that Overton window of acceptability Um, even crazier, you know, for people who thought that, you know, that Fox news was into conspiracy theories. Well, they're, they are now not conspiratorial enough. And so they're being (laughs) hit by the Newsmaxes and the OAN. So how do you, how do you see that playing out? Yeah. I've always been of the mind that the conservative politicians, Trump accepted, um, but conservative politicians are much less, their behavior is much less interesting and relevant most of the time compared to conservative media, mm-hmm. that conservative media is the real power broker you know, on the right, much more so than any given senator or even any collection of senators, unless they all you know act collectively. And, and so I'm very interested, I'm much more interested in the media battle between now and say 2022 or 2024, because that's going to tell an awful lot about the character of the right more broadly in the character of the Republican party more specifically. And if there is going to be a serious challenge to Fox from the Trump right, and I know there's, you know, Newsmax has had some uh, uh, spikes in viewership. And I think in the key demographic uh, demographic, Martha McCallum lost, Mm -hmm. you know, shockingly to Newsmax one evening. And, 
I do think that that is going to be fascinating because I don't know how everyone's going to react to it. That's what makes it fascinating is Fox going to react to a threat from news uh, to its hegemony from Newsmax by becoming slightly more Newsmaxy sort of, you know, rendering Newsmax um, a more poorly funded, lower production quality version right. of Fox, or is it going to kind of tack in a different direction and say, wait a minute, um, if Trump is, if sort of Trumpism is competitive to us, we're not going to co-opt it. We're going to crush it. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what that's going to be. I, I worried that what you'll find is sort of all of the big players, the truly big players in conservative media will sort of tack more towards Newsmax and OAN. I, I, I think that's true. It, it, it's like it's like watching a group of uh, drug dealers, you know, uh, competing on for the same corner. Um, you know, that somebody's got pot and somebody's got heroin and somebody's got the really good stuff, the crack. And it's like, you know, what wh <laughs> what is the direction here? Well, I agree with you because you know, you you watch what's happened to conservative talk radio. Look at Rush Limbaugh who used right. to be sort of mainstream conservative and actually kind of, in, you know, funny and entertaining on occasion. Um, he's gone completely, you know, bitter uh, conspiracy theories, uh, just the, you know, most disingenuous bullshit out there because he doesn't want to be outflanked on the right. And, and I think that this, I don't think you can overstate how nervous some of these people are to be perceived as being not sufficiently fighting going back to your whole point it's all about fighting and if one of these networks can say we are the ones that fought when the other guys surrendered yeah. they have an advantage well think mark levin for example mm -hmm. i mean this is a guy who sort of fashioned himself for years as like the thinking man's constitutional conservative and he's totally all in on this you know this this plan to get the electors you know going all the way back to just days after the election you know, having the state legislators select their own slates or, you know, override the will of the electorate in their states. I mean, and so it's always this fight, 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 fight. If I'm not seen as fighting, somebody else is going to be seen as fighting. And this, this, you know, I, I've used this comparison before and I, I really, I think it's right. You know how on the left, um, accusations of racism, for example, or transphobia or homophobia from the far left can really be used to cow and to can't sometimes cancel people who are on the mainstream left mm -hmm. that there are a lot of people uh, we know who live in fear of an allegation of racism uh, just for opposing some aspects of say critical race theory or whatever so you see the power of the racism allegation um, on the left towards people on the left is really it's an instrument of of political correctness and illiberalism, these sort of allegations. On the right, allegations of racism don't have purchase, mm -hmm. but allegations of cowardice do. And, and you see this all over the place. If, it is, if you are not fighting the way the far right demands that you fight, you are accused of weakness, cowardice, effeminacy. I mean, you name it. It is all about, and so people live in fear of this cowardice allegation. They live in fear of this allegation that they're weak. And so that's the instrument and the hammer of social control on the far right. And it is, uh, and it's one of the reasons why you see these, these um, talk radio hosts who even have large audiences, they're not in command of their audience. Their audience is in command of them. Mm -hmm. 
No, I, I, I for people who are listening, I, I could not, I could not agree more with all of this. Um, of what you're saying. So let me bounce something off you and feel free to disagree about this because you know, as I'm, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about the famous debate that took place uh, earlier this year between you and Sora Bomari from the New York post. And basically you, you are coming down for, you know, the long tradition of classical liberalism, liberal democracy, constitutional democracy, and he's more into theocratic authoritarianism. I'm, I'm just sort of making it as, as broad as possible. And it seemed like a, pretty narrow debate involving, you know, conservative media folks um, and, you know, so, so somewhat esoteric. I'm kind of amazed watching now as it plays out how much purchase this sort of authoritarianism now has on the right, how yeah. the whole idea of that we don't want to be tolerant, we don't want to be concerned about process, that if we have power, we should use it to impose our vision that... I guess even a year ago, I would have thought relatively narrow segment of the right. Now I'm not so sure. Well, you know, it has been a very interesting fight between elements of the elected right, not everyone, because many elected officials on the right have upheld the law and done the right thing, and elements of the legal right, sort of the the part of the the, the movement that I grew up in uh, of the right, that sort of this constitutional, classical, liberal, originalist, textualist um, culture. And so far, um, interestingly enough, guess who's won? Yeah. <laughs> the legal right. <laughs> um, and the the part of the right that is fight, 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 fight is, a, is going down to defeat. I mean, it's it's going down to not just defeat, but gross and embarrassing defeat, uh, pathetic defeat. Um, crazed conspiracy theory defeat. But that doesn't mean it isn't dangerous because it's pulling a lot of people into its orbit. Um, now, I think they overstate and overbelieve their strength based on some of these polls about, you know, two thirds or three quarters of Republicans don't believe that the election was legitimate. A lot of that is I've kind of placed uh, Republicans in three buckets, like bucket one, which is unfortunately small is, yeah, this was a free and fair election and, and Trump lost. That's bucket one. Bucket two is there was something wrong with that election. What's the score of the Alabama game? Which is, I sort of have a casual commitment to believing something was wrong, but I'm a lot more worried about other things in life. Mm -hmm. Like I'm already putting in the rearview mirror. I'm folding up the Trump flag. You know, I'm more focused on other things. And then bucket three is where these people live. And we don't know how big it is exactly. I don't think it's, I think it's very overrepresented on Twitter, very overrepresented. But bucket three is this, we will, you know, we're, we're going to continue to go down. We'll go down swinging on January 6th. And that bucket three has just been losing, grotesquely losing to such an extent that they really should be ashamed. Like they, they should be embarrassed. But honestly. that's where Donald Trump is and that's what he's pumping. That's true. So. That's exactly right. That's where the president of the United States is in bucket three, just, <laughs> and it's embarrassing. Just one more point, though, on this, the conservative legal movement. I, what's happened over the last six weeks has been very, very clarifying. It ought to be clarifying um, about what it means to be a conservative judge. And what's interesting about it is, is that I think it came as it didn't come as a surprise to you. Really, no. frankly, didn't come as that much of a surprise to me. But it does come as a, a surprise to some folks on the left, but also more interestingly, so many people on the right who apparently did think that conservative judges were about doing our thing, not about 
applying the law, not about uh, showing judicial restraint. You can see there's a great deal of disillusionment on the part of the president and many of his supporters that the conservative judges behaved exactly as those conservative judges said they would behave. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was, you know, because the funny thing is like the, the number of people who actually know the philosophy and character of these judges and justices is vanishingly small. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the nerds of the nerds of the nerds of the nerds who can talk about Amy Coney Barrett's jurisprudence. I mean, let's just be honest. And, and so a lot of people sort of think they think of judges almost entirely as outputs. Yeah. What, who won, who wins, who loses? That's how I evaluate a judge, but good judges are thinking about inputs. What, what is the argument? What is the text? What is, you know, what is the evidence? And the inputs create the outputs. And, and one of the things you know about, if you know about the vast majority of these Trump judges and justices is, and not all of them, not all of them are good, but the vast majority come from a very specific tradition and a very specific philosophy. And most of them have a track record of applying that philosophy. And so if you knew anything, about Brett Kavanaugh, about Amy Coney Barrett, about Neil Gorsuch, beyond sort of the top line Trump appointee, you knew that they were not going to side with Trump on that Texas case. It wasn't even close. Not even it close. wasn't going to be an issue. <laughs> and you also knew about in the Third Circuit, you knew in the 11th Circuit, you knew that these people, even some who were on the Trump shortlist for Supreme Court, they were not going to adopt the Trump argument. They were not. And, and I, I, you know, for those people who are sort of casual followers of politics, I totally get their surprise because they don't think of judges as people who are implementing a particular philosophy. But those who know anything about this, if any of them are surprised, that's on them because this was never going anywhere legally. No, it was not. It was not even close. You know, you and I could we could spend twice as much time. We haven't even talked about Bill Barr. We haven't talked about pardons. <laughs> we haven't talked about any of that stuff. But you know what? I think there's going to be plenty of time. I think the next thirty days is going to feel like like six months. Oh, uh, it is. In term, no, normally, people take off for for two weeks or, or, or so. I always, when I used to have a radio job, I would try to take off the second half of of December because I just needed to to unplug. I think that's part of the problem that we have now is that there's never a time when you unplug. That, that everything sort of goes together. There are no weekends. There are no holidays. Yes. And that if you think, you know, I'm going to take off that week between Christmas and, and New Year's, you know, that's when that's when all the stuff's going to happen, right? It's just going to yeah. flow down right right then. And whatever plan you make, you're going to get called back in. So you might as well just, okay, so this is another thing that's just not going to happen in 2020. Oh, and we haven't even talked about what might end up happening on pardons, which. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> Well, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I strongly suspect that we're going to see a pardon spree that makes Bill Clinton's look like, oh, oh I don't know, you know, he was George Washington or something. I mean, um, I don't know. I don't know what to expect. I mean, but but I'm I'm I'll let's just say that if if the reports and the leaks have any bare resemblance to reality, uh, buckle up. Buckle up because it could get interesting. I, I just think that the 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 under normal circumstances, the the tension between Donald Trump run, wanting to run twenty twenty four, yeah, the Donald Trump wants to pardon everybody. That that there's a little there's a conflict there. That that yeah. if he, he would like to self pardon. He would like to pardon every everybody named Trump except Mary. Um, 
but that would obviously be a real problem if he wants to run for president again. But I'm just not sure that he thinks in that kind of logical, linear way. I, I do think that right now he's sitting in that bunker and thinking, I'm going to do everything I want to do now. I'm going to have vengeance on everyone I dislike. Yeah. I'm going to protect <laughs> every one of my friends. And I just don't care. I'm going to get away with it because I've gotten away with it in the past. And, and that's part of this one-year anniversary of the impeachment. I think the impeachment, you and I agreed on this, was a good thing. I'm glad they did it. Um, I wish they would have you know, taken it further. But the lesson he took from it was um, there are no consequences. There are no yep. checks and balances on me. I can do anything. And yep. so- and it, you know, I've had my challenges and problems with Mike Pence, but does anyone think that America would be worse off if Mike Pence was actually handling the coronavirus response? Yeah. Yeah. So there are costs and consequences to making compromises with people like Donald Trump. And sometimes those costs are measured in human lives and economic devastation. Where do you come down on the question of whether the president can pardon himself? You know, that's a really good question. I tend to think that uh, he, let me put it this way. There is, there was no intent for the president to be able to pardon himself, but I don't think that the court will touch that. Well, it would have to be litigated. And the only way to litigate it, right, would be for him to be charged with something. I mean, and right. then work, work its way up. In and, spite of the pardon, right. For somebody right. to defy the pardon. But remember, he can only pardon against federal Yes. Offenses. He can't pardon against a state offense. That's the argument against him doing it that I think in, it, at some point will prevail, which is that he takes the hit for pardoning himself, but he doesn't actually protect himself. So you right. don't get the benefit from you're not it's not a get out of jail uh, free card for you. Um, but it, but it certainly would be a stain forever. Uh, uh, puts like another stain forever on the Trump <laughs> presidency. David French, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're, you're extremely busy and uh, we're very, very grateful for uh, how generous you are with your time. Well, thanks so much for having me, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again.